0: Welcome to ICANN, a podcast about ophthalmology through a uniquely Canadian lens with Dr. Cedare Ziai and myself, Dr. Guillermo Rocha. We'll share our experiences as ophthalmologists today and tackle some challenges we face as healthcare providers. Are you ready, Cedare?
1: Let's do it, Guillermo. On this episode of ICANN, we talk with ophthalmologist and published author, Dr. Nina Ahuja, about physician resiliency and wellness. Dr. Nina Ahuja is a cataract specialist based in Hamilton, Ontario. With a passion for teaching, Dr. Ahuja was a key contributor in establishing the ophthalmology residency program at McMaster University, a program that began back in 2005. She has won numerous awards for excellence in teaching and for her contributions to residency education, including as past program director. She continues to be actively involved as academic division head for ophthalmology, Department of Surgery, McMaster University, and she's also an examiner for the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada. She is now also the new author of a best-selling book called Stress in Medicine, Lessons Learned Through My Years as a Surgeon from Med School to Residency and Beyond and she's a strong advocate for wellness for physicians, fellow health professionals, and students in health professional programs.
0: Nina, it is a pleasure to have you on the podcast. And with such an impressive profile, I think you're the perfect person to speak about physician wellness, and more importantly, how do we achieve that life-work balance? What can you tell us about that?
2: It's an interesting question, given the fact that so much of what we do over the years becomes part of a norm for us. The reason I say that is that we're so geared towards achievement in trying to get into medical school and trying to get into residency that we're driven by the hoops that we need to jump through to get to where we want to be. And I think when you're reared in that sort of culture and environment and that level of expectation, that becomes something that just becomes part of who we are. And so the idea of balancing with life outside of medicine becomes something that, is somewhat of a challenge because it's not something that is innate to how we think, given what we have to do to get to where we are. So I think there, it's it's a challenging um, question and it's a challenging pursuit. I think one that's definitely achievable, but something that we actively have to be thinking about in order to be able to achieve that.
0: And, and does that balance for you, Nina? Does that mean is completely separating our life as a physician uh, in our work and also our personal life or do you think more in terms of a full quote unquote life balance as a whole
2: my perspective is a, is a full life balance and the reason i say that is our work as physicians can stem into many different areas so for example, one of the things I've always loved about medicine is that on the one hand you can be working with patients on the other hand you can be teaching residents on the other hand you can be contributing to you know voluntary organizations so it's it's there's vast opportunity there where you can even go into your children's schools and give a talk on eye injuries which I had done in the past so there are lots of various uh, there are lots of avenues I think where you can really, blend the two. Um, for some of us, work is a bit of a hobby as well, where, you know, you've got your practice on the one hand, but, you know, you're writing on another hand, or you're um, researching on another hand, or you're creating organizations, um, such as yourself, self that, you know, they take up your time, It's it's not necessarily directly relating to your work, but it's something that you enjoy and brings you satisfaction. I think the key element of that, though, is to be able to see the totality of what you're doing in a way that is allowing you to grow and contribute to every aspect of your life. Mm -hmm. So that where you're conscientious about your work, you're conscientious about your family and you're conscientious about spending the quality time that is necessary in order to support your family and establish those bonds and um, live a life that then becomes one of balance by the way that you're taking those key attributes that make you successful at work and applying those to your home life as well.
1: I think probably there are moments in all of our lives where we're feeling more self-aware and in touch with, you know, how balanced we are feeling, but in your eyes and within the realm of research that you've done in the book that you've written, what do you think are the most common um, indicators or early indicators, maybe of physician burnout or la- loss of that balance um, Um, that we can use to sort of maybe recognize in ourselves or in our colleagues so that we can then, you know, catch it before it gets,
2: it it goes a little bit too far. With respect to identifying when stress becomes too much, I think the first key element is recognizing how you respond to stress. So we know that stress manifests in uh, four different areas. So for example, you've got your emotional responses where you can be more irritable, potentially have a short fuse, um, feeling anxious, depressed, there, there, there's that experience of stress. Then there are the physical elements. So if you have palpitations or you're finding you have headaches all the time, um, you know, you get joint and muscle aches, uh, low libido, things like that. Those are more the physical manifestations. Then there are the cognitive manifestations where, you know, you're becoming forgetful all the time. You feel like your brain is in a fog. There's a, there's a mental sense of overload where you can't concentrate and keep your thoughts organized. Those are the cognitive manifestations. And then there are the behavioral manifestations, uh, such as overeating or undereating or wanting to sleep all the time, um, becoming reliant on substances for relief, whether they be addictive addictive substances or addictive behaviors. So I think the first thing is to be able to recognize what are your own responses to stress and those are things that sometimes we can't identify in ourselves and we need to turn to other people to help identify those for us so that one of the exercises in the book that i talk about is you know reflect on what do you think your responses to stress are across these different uh, areas and then what do people think are your responses if the two align, there that indicates that there is this self-awareness and you are um, aware of how you respond to stress. If you're not, then you can learn things from other people. But the key thing is, is that if you know what those responses are, whether it be through self-reflection or by someone reflecting it back to you, you can then monitor and have others monitor you so that they can identify things that do tend to um, indicate that there is Uh, an overload happening that needs to be addressed.
1: It would be so wonderful if um, the field of medicine Um, allowed us to have those conversations as openly as what you suggest in your book and as what you're saying now. But certainly I think mental health has always been a taboo in our society. I feel like it's even more so in medicine and to the point where it really does get too far in certain people's lives. And we saw another physician suicide this past week um, in Granby, Ontario. And it's just It's so shocking that it has become—it's gone this far, and we are still not able to catch it in ourselves or catch it in our colleagues early enough. Do you think? um, Do you think the taboo of mental health um, illness in medicine is greater than in society as a whole because of the mentality and the way we're trained, or how do we how do we address this?
2: I think that. It is greater in the sense of expectation that we place on ourselves where, you know, we measure ourselves against our peers and our colleagues and all of our peers and colleagues are extremely highly accomplished. And so that sets a bar within ourselves that is, um, you know, a very high measure to reach. Having said that, I think we don't necessarily give ourselves a chance as colleagues where we've had the training, we understand what mental illness is, We understand what the impact is and, you know, that it's something that's often very organic. Uh, And so I think if we were to give each other a chance, there is a possibility that the stigma that we're putting upon ourselves in our own mind, and that is perpetuated in society. I think that we have a greater chance of overcoming that simply because we have the knowledge and understanding of what it really means to have a mental illness and what its origins are.
0: So in this this past year, uh, Nina, I'm just curious about what type of experiences were shared with you um, before the pandemic, everybody was working and obviously we had to deal with some of these stresses. Then during the pandemic is different. And now we're getting back to work um, and we have to deal with other aspects. Um, what has been your impression in this past year and how would the, the tools that you That you describe in your book, in particular, the um, admit uh, framework with adapting, doing, measuring, introspecting and then transforming. How, How has that been applicable to some of the experiences that perhaps you have had yourself or some other colleagues or residents or medical students have shared with you?
2: The challenges that, you know, people shared prior to the pandemic were actually quite similar to a lot of the ones that I experienced in my medical education and early career, which is really what the driver, that was actually the driver of writing the book. Uh, When the pandemic hit, you know, we were dealing with issues on a national level uh, about residency education being interrupted, about there being concerns with application processes for residency when it came to the medical school uh, final grads, and then for applying for fellowships and new uh, job opportunities for those who are in final year in residency. Uh, at that time, I started reading blogs, that's where I saw a lot of the concerns pre pandemic, uh, which resonated with me from what I was experiencing back in those days. And then combining that with what was being experienced in the pandemic mode early on, all of that basically made me feel that lots of these challenges are kind of everlasting and ongoing and they just get compounded by the external circumstance that's around us. With respect to physicians, because we addressed a little bit about the medical school, medical student experience and resident experience, from a physician standpoint, What was very interesting to hear and which, again, uh, inspired me writing this book, was the idea that physicians and surgeons in particular, where elective surgery was, was shut down, a lot of us identify with being a surgeon or with being a physician in practice. And so when you're not allowed to do that, you're suddenly lost in a sense of identity as to what is the meaning for your being, in a sense, if you've primarily identified yourself in your capacity as a physician or surgeon. So those were the aspects that were highlighted more within the pandemic. Those were more of the internal conflicts and stresses that were were being expressed uh, in various discussions that I was having. And then of course there were the external stresses as well. How do you uh, reorganize curriculum? How do you make sure that our residents are going to be achieving the, the milestones that they need to achieve in order to be able to be deemed competent Uh, and able to write their exams and, you know, confidently pursue practice after graduation. From the people who are more faculty and senior um, physicians and surgeons, the idea there was, you know, well, there's the whole practical aspect of you're running a private practice. What do you do with your staff? How do you sustain your business for those of us who are in private practice? And then for those who are in uh, the hospital setting, how are you going to meet the mandates for hospitals including social distancing measures, um, you know, masking requirements, uh, being able to still hit your targets for cataract surgery, for example, some of those objective measures that the hospitals look at, which then in turn impacts at a ministry level for funding. And so there's the external and the internal sources of stress, which um, really just, you know, multiplied and built upon each other.
0: Wants to know what you think. Please send your comments on today's episode or any suggestions you may have for topics or features to communications at cos-sco.ca and we'll try to incorporate them into future episodes.
2: I'm Dr. Yvonne Baez, the current past president of the
1: COS, and I listen to the ICANN podcast. Nina, can you tell us a little bit, for those who haven't yet read your book, uh, a little bit more about your ADMIT framework, which is sort of the backbone, I think, of of your book, and which I found very helpful, actually, as an acronym. Um, And then, Perhaps people who uh, want to hear more will be inspired to to get their hands on your book, because I think it's a really great resource for physicians to have, for all physicians to have. Um, So if if you wouldn't mind, just in a few minutes, pull us through the the admit um, framework.
2: The admit framework is uh, was coined or developed when I when I, you know, on reflection of my own experience, I realized that my challenges were hitting one of five phases of experience. So, whether I was adapting to a new way of thinking or a new way of doing things, or, you know, doing the work and the quantity of work that was there, uh, measuring success, determining what was deemed to be success in my mind, introspection, so having the time to be mindful, uh, and then tra- the transformation process, which is really a culmination of all of the other steps having time to reflect on it, and then coming out with some lessons and growth at the end. That that really is the backbone of it. And within each of those phases that I describe in, in the book, it goes through to some of the psychological principles behind why we do things and how can we think about different principles to then reframe our approach to various challenges in a way that it allows us to move past that challenge and move into uh, the space of growth. So for example, Gary, you asked earlier, how can the admit framework be applied um, in the context that we're in, for example, with COVID? One of the conversations that I had was uh, with a nurse who was talking about how she had um, a number of patients pass away over the course of the past week. So how do you apply the admit framework to something like that? There's the adaptation of you know, we're not, they may be used to death. In our world, we don't, you know, deal with death often, but, well, rarely actually, uh, and hopefully it stays that way, but um, we don't deal with death often. And so where where you're in the ICU and you're on the front line and you're, you know, used to death on occasion, um, more often than not, when you're in the situation of a COVID ICU, you're dealing with death at a, at a volume or rate that's much more, uh which is much greater than what you're used to so it's the idea of like how do you come up, how do you move past that so that you can actually then go on to do your work and so then you can go on to you know measure your success so for example instead of measuring success by you know saying that we've cured this person and we've helped them recover from their condition they can now be discharged. In a sense, uh, in the context of COVID where, say, death is imminent, you have to change your measure of success of perhaps being, I was able to make that person's last few moments somewhat of a gift for the family because I was able to have them connected virtually or whatever that it is that it looks like. But you can go through each phase and look at, you know, Do you believe that you're a victim of circumstance or do you feel that you can control your circumstance? What is your motivation in that instance then? Is it about, you know, being able to um, connect with the patient and connect with their family or is it going to the fact that they may not make it override that definition of success? And so when you go through each of the principles in each of the phases, it can help you reframe the experience as tragic as it can be, or as challenging it can be without that emotional element, you can then change your thinking in a way that allows you to move past the, the challenge. So it can be applied for academics. It can be applied for patient care. It can be applied uh, for emotional elements. It can be applied for more elements. It really is a framework that is all encompassing and can be modified to whatever circumstance or context
0: you want to apply it to. You know, I do, uh, read just one phrase from your book um, that I think goes to the core of, of um, what we are in ophthalmology and especially as surgeons. Um, I'd like to read it. It says, I could hear my heart beating as I maintained a steady hand, knowing that the slightest slip could cause more damage. Um, I think that goes to the to, to the core of what a surgeon is. And um, I was watching a documentary with a very prominent transplant surgeon, liver transplant surgeon, and she used a a similar thing to this. She said, you have to be fearless, but always having the fear of failure. So um, what is your impression on that? And, And how do you think the particularity of our activities as surgeons translates into managing that type of stress?
2: The idea of being fearless and having that fear, it, it's a balance. I, I think I, I agree with that statement. Uh, and the reason for that is when you're in the operating room, as you all as you know, you have to be very decisive and you have to be very definitive about what you do. However, you also have to have the caution to know that if you go too far, that it could actually be uh, devastatingly detrimental in our case with loss of vision. The, um, the tie-in to the measuring aspect in the book, however, is that when you look at the objective outcome uh, in relation to the subjective experience, I think that's where the balance comes into play when you need to be fearless, but you also need to be fearing. So what do I mean by that? the the idea is that if you're in a situation that is acute and you need to be able to manage and handle a potential complication that's imminent that appears to be imminent you need to be able to be decisive enough as I mentioned earlier to say that I need to make this decision I need to do this action and I am understanding that if I don't do it the objective outcome will be this if I do do it the objective outcome could be this. However, there's the possibility of a negative outcome as well. I think the the, the challenge gets to be knowing that your internal measure, measure of success in that instance is one where you're looking at what your true intention was, what your effort was, what your degree of conscientiousness was in that instance, balanced with the confidence of having Uh, balance with the uh, confidence that you have in your skill and ability, which has been objectively measured, and therefore you can rely on it and be fearless in that instance. So I think there's the doing part, which you need to be able to be skilled. And then there's the um, idea of having the confidence in that skill, such that you're not afraid to use it, but you're still able to balance that I'm doing everything with the truest intention, not to be a cowboy or a cowgirl, but to really try to optimize the outcome as best as I can.
1: Nina, tell us what you do for balance and wellness and mindfulness. What it, what, it, what do you do in your time when you're not at work?
2: Um, I enjoy spending time with my family. Um, my husband and I, we enjoy going for walks. Um, I actually often take time to Meditate before bed if I if I can do it without falling asleep <laughs> it's not always successful uh, but I also enjoy um, time to just sit and listen to the sound of silence around me I find that that's very soothing I, we have so much sound around us all the time um, whether it just be the humming or buzzing of you know a lamp that's on or um, the computers that are running there's a, there's a silence beneath all of that, that I will often actively try to listen for that I find very calming. Um, and then it's, you know, we like to play board games and cards and, you know, things, spend time with my parents and talk on the phone and, uh, things like that. But I would say that, uh, the quiet moments are really important for me from a recharging standpoint. I also like reading. I also love sketching. Um, I don't always have time for all of it, but, uh, um, I do try to do those things if I can.
0: Nina, yeah, in many parts of your book, uh, you referred to your parents. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that uh, and how they have influenced the way you behave with with uh, other people, with your colleagues, with your residents, the people you are training? Because they, they seem to have had a very uh, positive impact on your life.
2: Yes, they definitely have. I've been blessed with amazing parents. Um I've always said they're the foundation of, of the success that I've achieved. Uh, my parents, they immigrated from India, actually, in 1971. My dad arrived, my mom arrived in 72. And we uh, when they settled, they settled in Timmins, Ontario, which is eight hours north of Toronto. So uh, I'm a Northern Ontario girl that way. <laughs> what was really wonderful about my parents is that they uh, immigrate from India, as I mentioned, but their approach to raising my brother and I, I have an elder brother, he's five and a half years uh, older to me, their approach was very much about um, incorporating the best of Western values with Eastern values. And so they were very, very open-minded and taught us that there is value in learning from everyone, there is value in every culture, and every person has something to say that's important. Along with that, when it came to um, our pursuits educationally they their principle was do your best don't worry about the outcome so that you can honestly say that you did everything that you could the outcome will be what it will be and the rewards will come as they're supposed to come and so with that there was also an element of faith that you know things will happen as they're supposed to but you know our job is to do everything we can to really put in a true and sincere effort Because of the way that they raised us uh, from the perspective of being very open-minded, it was uh, an environment where, you know, talking to anybody and everybody was something that was seen as being valuable. And with that, with my patients, I've always felt that uh, I take that principle into every patient interaction that I have. I also uh, approach every patient interaction with the idea that if they were my parents or the part of my family, how would I want them to be treated. So that um, just the level of respect that I have for them is something that permeates through to um, patient care and most things that I do when I
0: interact with people. Physicians don't prioritize their mental health. Uh, what what type of impact do you think that has on our uh, patients and patient care, Mina?
2: I think there's a significant impact on multiple levels. Um, The reason for that is our interactions with patients are multidimensional, so that there's the interpersonal interaction that we have, uh, and then there's, of course, the objective assessment and then determination of how we're going to proceed with the patient. So with the uh, interpersonal relation aspect, we've talked about the different ways that stress manifests if you're, you know, manifesting in an emotional way where you're irritable and you're short and you just don't want to interact, we're dealing with people when they're in their vulnerable state. And so that can have an impact not just on the fact that, you know, you are making the environment just a difficult environment for yourself and, you know, who knows how they'll respond in that interaction, but also the takeaway sense of they're coming to you for help and you're you may be providing the help in terms of offering a a prescription or, you know, um, a treatment plan that is objective. However, there is that element of the humanity and the human uh, touch that is important in patient care as well. Then if you turn to the more cognitive manifestation, if we're stressed and we're not maintaining our own mental health, there, there can be that element of confusion. There can be that element of forgetfulness and not being able to process what a patient's saying. And so that then has implications, uh, whether you're in a clinical assessment situation or whether you're in the operating room of potentially causing a sense of paralysis in terms of not being able to process and decide what needs to be done so that you're left with not being able to provide uh, appropriate care in whatever capacity that may be.
1: Um, other than your wonderful book, Nina, do you have any other um, top of your mind resources that our listeners can direct their attention to um, that focuses on any other resources that focus on physician wellness that are easily accessible for physicians in Canada?
2: Yes. Yeah. So a lot of the uh, national organizations have initiatives for wellness, like COS, is of, of course, as you know, is, is doing that. Uh, The Canadian Medical Association also has a physician wellness hub that people can access. Uh, The Ontario Medical Association is now developing their wellness initiative as well. Uh, And then there are uh, other organizations as well, uh, like the Canadian Mental Health uh, Association, which isn't specifically geared towards physicians, but it is a resource that's available to people. And so um, those are. it's nice to see that those initiatives are being developed uh, at a national level through advocacy organizations. The other thing too is the hospitals are developing their own wellness initiatives and programs as well through their employee support uh, systems through human resources. Again, not necessarily physician geared, but I know a lot of them are uh, developing to have a physician oriented arm towards that. So there are lots of resources available. And of course, there are peers and colleagues that we can turn to as well, and and then mental health professionals as well that can be accessed through family doctors and colleagues and whatnot.
1: Great, thank you so much, Nina, for joining us tonight. It was such a pleasure to speak to you, and congratulations again on your book and and uh, I look forward to meeting you in person one day. Yes, I look forward to
2: that too. Thank you, thank you for having me. Uh, thank you, Guillermo and Satira, very much.
1: Thank you to our guest, Dr. Nina Ahuja, for joining us. We look forward to bringing you more episodes. Here's what's coming up on our next episode. Hi, my name is Colin Mann. I'm a comprehensive ophthalmologist in Nova Scotia and the current president of the COS. I'm delighted to be here today on the ICANN podcast.
0: Hi there, I'm Elizabeth Fowler. I'm the CEO of the Canadian Ophthalmological Society, and I'm delighted to be here on the ICANN podcast.
1: I think just as there was a need for sharing of information and dissemination of guidance for best practices during the emergence of the pandemic, I think there'll be a similar need as we move out of the pandemic. Uh, How do we make the transition back to what practice will look like uh, beyond the pandemic? How do we start to deal with a backlog, or as I heard it referred to the other day as a a debt of patient care? you know, I think there's going to be a lot of challenges around that, and it's going to be important that we have conversations that lead to guidance around best practices there.
0: I can wants to know what you think. Please send your comments on today's episode or any suggestions you may have for topics or features to communications at cos-sco.ca and we'll try to incorporate them into future episodes.
1: The iTunes podcast is funded by MDF Affinity Grant. It is brought to you by the Canadian Ophthalmological Society, directed by Eric Johnson, and produced by John Allaire from Allaire Strategic Works.